So I want to begin by just telling you thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, praying for my family, specifically praying for my dad. It's been a really uh, challenging couple of weeks. Um, uh, he is trending better. What, what happened was he got an infection somewhere, went septic, got in his bloodstream, and uh, so he's really was struggling, but he's, uh, he is trending better. After a couple of weeks in the hospital, we moved him this weekend to a uh, rehabilitation hospital, so he's working on getting his strength back, um, so I would just appreciate uh, continued prayers, but uh, thank you. We, I mean, we, you know, it's, it's hard to actually uh, define it, describe it, but we had this really profound sense of, of the Lord and God's people uh, just carrying us through this, this last, last couple of weeks, so I just want to say uh, thank you for that. I also want to give a special shout out to Todd Berkey. Uh, my dad went in the hospital on a Wednesday, Thursday night, Todd had junction Friday morning. He texted me immediately and said, hey, how can I help? And, you know, day and a half prep, stepping into the middle of Romans, man, that's not easy, but Todd just jumped in. And I just, so when you see Todd, just, uh, again, thank him for stepping in. That was pretty, pretty amazing. All right, so we are uh, going to continue on. Romans chapter 3, if you're not there already, turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Before we get started in the text, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, so the story comes from our family's life when my kids were pretty small. They were early grade school age, and uh, we went to Colorado with uh, the Coils, Pat and Jeannie Coyle and their family. And, um, you know, the Coyles know uh, all, like, all things Estes Park. If you know the Coyle family, like, they just know everything about Estes Park. And um, we were up there at the same time with them. And uh, Pat said, hey, do you want to go on a hike? Let's take our kids on a hike. And I go, I'd love to take my kids on a hike. I love hiking. And he goes, this is a great hike. Take your kids on. And uh, so we started on this hike. We went out the back door of the cabin, and we went up this hill, and uh, it was really hard. It was really, really hard. And, you know, my kids are pretty small, and, and uh, they're kind of struggling a little bit, and they're starting to complain a bit, and there's nowhere to stop for water, and we drank all of our water, and we've eaten all of our snacks, and, and I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know if I can trust Pat anymore. I mean, we've been friends a long time, but this is a hard hike, and we're getting up, and what we did is we went up, and we, con- we were connecting with a trail that would go up to, to Deer Mountain. We wanted to get to the peak of Deer Mountain. And what I learned subsequently is that uh, for really smart people, they drive into Rocky Mountain National Park and up to a trailhead, and then they have this nice short hike up to Deer Mountain. But we didn't do that. We didn't do that. We went, we went out. We went the long way with our kids. And so, you know, we're struggling, and they're complaining. And, they're, and what I discovered, too, is since we're on this kind of trail that's harder, and most people are taking the easy trail, we didn't see anyone. So I couldn't, couldn't ask anyone, are we almost there? Are we getting close, right? Because there's no one there. There's no one to ask. And I'm not going to bother asking Pat anymore, right? I mean, it, we're just so, we're, it's just a hard hike and we're struggling. Are we going to make it? And finally, you know, we intersected the other trail and I began to see people coming down and going up and I could ask them, are, you know, are we almost there? And like, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. And we finally got to this point where there, there are these steps that are put in. They're just big stone steps. Our kids had to just like their huge climb over them and we could see the top and we got to the top. And Pat was right. It was an amazing view and it was totally worth it. It was just this profound sense of relief when we got there. And I discovered when we got to the top that every time we had stopped to get water or a snack, my daughter and one of Pat's daughters had put rocks in my son's backpack just to make it a little bit harder for him, right? So we get there, and it was just like, just this great sense of relief and this beautiful view. And what I would love for you to experience on a spiritual level this morning is that sense of relief. Okay, we're there. We're going to turn the corner. Because we've been in some really, really heavy passages in the first three chapters of Romans. You will recall that uh, we're saying the theme of Romans is the gospel, 
And specifically, the gospel is good news, or as we begin, the gospel is the very best news ever because God gives us his righteousness for free. But before Paul actually gets us to this point of the good news, he takes us really deep into the bad news so we can appreciate how good the good news is. And what Paul says is that God has revealed himself over and over and over again because Paul uh, is telling us God wants to be known. God's not trying to hide himself. God is trying to disclose himself so that he can be in relationship with people. And so God has revealed himself in creation. And rather than embracing what God has revealed in creation, mankind had said no, and we have turned to idolatry and immorality. And God has revealed himself in conscience in man's mind and heart. But instead of turning to God through the revelation in conscience, we know the right thing to do, but we choose to do something else instead. And God has revealed himself through the law, and so the Jews actually did have an advantage. They had the most specific revelation that God had given to mankind of himself, but instead of obeying the law, the Jews violated the law, but also judged others for violating the law that they did not have. And so Paul concludes that section here in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And Paul's intention is to absolutely shatter all of our self-confidence and any form of self-righteousness and remind us that no matter which category you fall in, you're equally broken and in desperate need of the good news. Verse 21 Paul writes, but now, but now. As Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh pastor and theologian, said this, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. You can't climb the heights of the holiness of God. You can't scale that mountain. You, you cannot make it, but now. God in Jesus Christ has removed your debt of sin and has replaced it with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we're about to turn the corner into the good news that God has given us his righteousness for free. Read with me again verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this morning what we're going to do as we dig into chapter 3 is we're going to talk about God's gift of righteousness. And I'm going to give you uh, five characteristics of God's gift of righteousness. The first is this. It costs us nothing. God's gift of righteousness costs us nothing, which isn't to say that it costs nothing, but it costs us nothing. But it costs the giver everything, but it costs us nothing. Instead, Paul will say it is a gift that we receive freely by faith. Now, what does it mean to receive a gift by faith? What is faith? How do we define that term? Um, I'm going to give you an illustration to help define it, and then we'll dig back into the text. Um, I, I love to, to fly on airplanes. Like, I like to go places. So every time I see a plane flying overhead, I'm like, 
I wish I was on that. I don't care where it's going. I just wish I was on that plane. Uh, not everybody feels the same. And so I've discovered through the years as I watch people on planes and in airports that uh, flying on a plane is a great illustration of the nature of faith and what is required of us faith. So uh, one flight I was on, I was uh, going with a friend of mine, John Holmes, to uh, Central Asia, to Kazakhstan. We were going to teach theology for a couple weeks. And our trip took us through Moscow. So we had to deplane in Moscow, had a short layover, and then we got on another plane in Moscow, and we are going to fly to Almaty, Kazakhstan. So after we got on our, our flight in Moscow, we're sitting on the tarmac, and it's February, right? So I mean, it's just crazy cold. It's just crazy, crazy cold. Winter storm's coming in. We're sitting on the tarmac, and we're delayed because this winter storm is coming in. And I had a, I had a window seat, and I'm looking out the window, and I was right on the wing, and I'm watching ice accumulate on the wing. And interestingly, on the timing, I had just read an article about how planes crash when there are, there's ice on the wing, right? So I'm sitting there watching the ice accumulate, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, they'll just bring out the de-icing machine and they'll just take all of that ice off the wing. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting and I'm waiting, you know, and waiting and they're not, it's just getting more and more ice. And then the plane just starts to move and we're, we're going to take off. And, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, we're in the former Soviet Union. <laughs> Why was I thinking they'd send a de-icer? Oh Lord, please give me faith to believe that we will not die. A little more context. This was February. Uh, Tristy and I were engaged to get married in March. So I'm like, this is a bad time to die. I mean, not that there's a great time, but this is a bad time. Let me at least get to my wedding and my honeymoon, right? Please, Lord, please get, you know. And, and you know what? We, obviously, we survived. The plane took off. The plane landed. We lived. But it required a lot of faith. There's another flight I was on where I was flying through London, and I missed a connection. It wasn't my fault. And so British Air lines. Uh, they bumped me up to business class the next day, gave me a free hotel room, bumped me up to business class. I've never been on business class. Got on, I'm like, this is how God made me to live. This is awesome, right? I'm, I have like a couch and reclining. They're bringing me all kinds of drinks and food. I go, this is absolutely amazing. And you know what? My flight took off and it landed. In both cases, the plane took me where I needed to go. The first flight required a lot of faith. The second flight didn't require much faith. But in each case, it wasn't actually my faith that got me to my destination. It was the object of my faith. Right? It's the object of our faith that carries us. Faith is receiving a gift, so to speak. So sometimes, you, you know, you get on a plane and you've got some anxiety, you've got some fear, you've got some, some apprehension. Um, Probably even when that happens, you don't go to the cockpit and quiz the pilot and talk about his credentials and how many hours he has. You don't ask to have him tour the plane with you and show you the jet engines right, and lift the hood, if there is such a thing as a hood on a plane, which I don't even know. You know, you, you, don't, you don't review your course on aerodynamics or, for most of us, even watch a YouTube video for two minutes on aerodynamics, right? You don't, you don't ask what food is going to be served. You don't, you don't check all those things. You trust. Right? You trust the engineer who designed plane. You trust the mechanics who built the plane. You trust the pilot who's flying the plane. And if your faith is well-placed, the plane carries you to the destination. And what you do is you receive. Now, for my part, uh, I love flying, and it just relaxes me. It does the opposite for some people. But when I get on a plane and the engines start to turn and I feel that buzz, 
uh, you know, I, I fall asleep almost immediately. It absolutely, utterly drives my wife crazy, right? She's like, wake up, wake up, right? I'm like, why? We're on the ground, right? Just, so I wake up once we're in the air. And I do nothing. I do nothing to get there. I receive a free gift. Faith is receiving what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Read with me again verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now that could be translated uh, another way. I think there's a better translation of it, which would be this. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is, here is the, the object of our trust is the faithfulness of Jesus. What Jesus did, faithfully obeying the will of fa the Father to go to the cross and to pay the penalty for our sins, where we are unfaithful, Jesus was faithful. We put our trust in that. We stop trusting in our own efforts and our own goodness, and instead we're trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And notice he says here, the, uh, even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. This applies to absolutely every single person. If you want to be put back in a right relationship with God, this is the way you get there for every person. Right? When you get on a plane, there are distinctions, right? Are you, are you in first class? Well, you get to go on first. And the first class people are seated and they're enjoying their drinks and they don't even make eye contact with the rest of us, right? They're just condescending. We pass by and they look down. They don't even want to raise their eyes, right, to the people who are sitting by the toilets. No, right, there's a distinction. That's not true here. doesn't matter if you are young or old or black or white or Hispanic or male or female. We are all equally broken before Jesus Christ. We don't bring anything. We just receive. So the first characteristic of God's gift of righteousness is that it costs us nothing, which again is not to say that it costs nothing, but it costs the recipients nothing. Second, God's gift of righteousness restores our standing. And we're going to unpack three really important theological words here in the course of uh, this text. The first is justification. Read with me in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So just, justified, justification, righteousness, all of those words are from the same root word. It occurs six times in six verses in this paragraph. 56 times in the book of Romans. It's the most important word in the book of Romans. I would argue it's possibly the most important word to understand the nature of our salvation. Justify. What does it mean that we are justified? Okay. Let's go all the way back to uh, the beginning of the gospel story. Adam and Eve were in the garden. And they're, they're in right relationship with God. They're walking with God in the cool of the day. They're enjoying their relationship with God. They're enjoying their relationship with one another. There's harmony. They're rightly related. Then they sin and they experience death or separation or alienation, right? Their relationship with God is broken. Consequently, their relationship with each other is broken. Their relationship with the earth is broken. Eventually, their relationship with their children will be broken. Their relationship with other families that arise out of their family will be broken. There is a separation or an alienation that is death. But God is not satisfied with people who are made in his image being separated from him. So he wants to put us back in right relationship with him. That's what it means to be 
justified. Now, this is really critical. To be justified means to be declared righteous, not made righteous. Okay? To be justified in this context means to be declared righteous, not made righteous. Now, does God want to make us righteous in the sense of make us holy, make us like Jesus, transform us? Yes. Absolutely yes. Romans 6 through 8, that's going to be the topic. God, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God is progressively making you like Jesus. He is making you righteous. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about you being declared righteous. It's a legal term. To be in right standing before the judge. The judge issues a favorable verdict on your behalf and says you are now in right relationship with the court, with the law, and with others. You are rightly related. It's a, it's a legal declaration. You, you may be better today than you were yesterday. You might be worse today than you were yesterday. You might be better than the people around you. You might be worse than the people around you. You might be becoming more holy. You might be becoming less holy. If God has declared you righteous, you are righteous. Not because of anything that you have done, but because, because of what Jesus has done and that God is crediting Christ's righteousness to your account. Okay? Simple illustration. The 50% of you will relate to now and 50% will remember you step into class, you get a syllabus. And the syllabus says, if you want to be rightly related to me and get an A, this is what you've got to do. You've got to score this on tests, quizzes, homework, uh, writing assignments. And if you do, you will measure up and you'll get an A. And if you don't do these things, you won't measure up. You won't be rightly related to the grade of A and to the professor. Consequently, right, you won't measure up. What Paul is saying in Romans 1 through 3 is we don't measure up. We don't measure up on our own. 3.23, let's read it again. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, that word for sin was used in uh, Greek mythology of a warrior who threw his spear and he missed his enemy. He missed the mark. His sword or, or his javelin fell short. Paul says, um, the standard is the glory of God, which is shorthand for all of the perfections of God's attributes. This is the standard. Do you want to measure up? You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, and you are not. You don't measure up. I don't measure up. All have sinned and fall short of the standard, which is the glory of God. We don't measure up. So what does he say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we need to be justified as a gift. We need to be declared righteous because we're not righteous if the standard ultimately is the perfection of God. So notice how Paul says it here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is, he's going to transfer our unrighteousness, our sin, out of our account, and he's going to transfer into our account the righteousness that Jesus has earned through his faithfulness so God can look on you and he can look on me and he can say, you are righteous. Your status or your standing has changed. You have been declared righteous. So read with me again, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. Okay, Paul's just piling it on here. It costs you nothing. Instead, it's a gift. What, is it, what does gift mean in Greek? Anybody study that? Jonah, what do you think? Gift in Greek. It means, it means gift. 
I mean, that's what, it's just really simple. I mean, really quite literally it means free gift. If, if you're the recipient, you don't pay anything. There's no charge to you. There is a cost, though, to the giver. This cost God what was most valuable to him. He gave his one and only, his unique son. But it's a gift for us, received, he says, by grace. You don't deserve it. God's unearned favor towards you, an absolutely free gift. So uh, let me illustrate. Pearson, imagine uh, that you, know, you need to borrow my truck. And I say, you know what, don't borrow it. I'm going to give it to you. I'm just going to give you my truck. It's a really nice truck. It's red, which is cool. It's a Tundra, which is really nice. It's only got 40,000 miles. Pearson, it's yours. It's a gift. I want to give it to you freely. However, I do require that you wash and wax it every day. I don't want you to drive it over 20 miles an hour. You need to wear a helmet while you're driving it. And if you wreck it, you've got to fix it and give it back. Free gift? Not a free gift. That's not the nature of a free gift. This is a gift that God gives because he's already paid the price. He can give it away freely. So God's gift of righteousness, it costs us nothing. It costs God everything. It restores our standing. That is, we are declared to be in right relationship with God. Third, it rescues us from slavery. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory of God is the standard, God's perfections. We fall short. We don't, we don't, we don't measure up. Therefore, we must be declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. That is, how is it that God can declare us righteous? Because he has redeemed us. He's paid the price. Three words for redemption in Greek. Two of them really focus on the price that was paid or the cost. So you've been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the cost of the, the, the redemption. That is, we're as it, pictured as slaves in the marketplace, and, and God comes and he pays for us. He, he pays a high price for us. The word that's used here is a third word that talks about the result of being redeemed, which is now you're free. Right? You were a slave. You were, you were rightly related to sin and to death. And because Jesus has paid the ultimate price, that necessary relationship with sin and death has been broken so you can be rightly related to God. How is it that he can declare you righteous? Because he's broken the relationship with sin and death. And he's established a new relationship of life in Jesus Christ. Now we're rightly related to him because the price has been paid. Let me give you another illustration of this. Um, when Tristan and I were first married, we lived in, uh, we lived in a duplex and um, mow, had to mow our own lawn, had to take care of everything. Uh, so I bought a mower and a mow in our yard and my neighbor came over one day and he said, hey, my mower's broken, can I borrow your mower? I said, absolutely, sure, borrow my mower. So go inside, he's mowing his lawn, he comes back, brings my mower back, and he says, hey, sorry, it's broken. I go, okay. <laughs> I'm thinking, what are you going to do about that, right? I mean, you know, he goes, nothing. He just goes, here's your mower, it's broken. And he had no intention of repairing it or replacing it. He just parked it, right? He just put it back on my porch. porch. You know, here's your, here's your mower. Your mower's not broken Good luck, right? I mean, just, you know, and, and, and I realized later, he, he didn't actually have the means to repair it or replace it. He was as poor as we were. He's a young married guy. He had a kid. He, he couldn't do anything about it. What bugged me was that he didn't even want to, right? He didn't even have any intention to. And so there's a little bit of uh, something in our relationship 
that's broken. There's a debt that needed to be paid in our relationship. And so I decided that I didn't want that debt to remain separating us, so I paid the debt. For what was owed me, I paid. I bought a new mower. First, because I needed to mow my lawn, but second, I wanted a relationship with him. And I didn't want the debt to stand between us. And so I paid it, and that's what Jesus has done for us. God didn't want a debt to stand between us. The debt was owed to God, but he paid it himself so that he could declare us to be in right relationship with him. Fourth, God's gift of righteousness frees us from punishment. It frees us from punishment. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, the word for propitiation, again, is a word that we never use, but it's a really important word uh, theologically in the Bible. The word literally here is the place of propitiation, which sometimes we translate as the mercy seat. So Paul is making an allusion here to the Ark of the Covenant. Just so you can visualize, uh, this is not a photograph. This is uh, just an artist rendering. Um, we don't actually have possession as U.S. government of the Ark of the Covenant. This is just a rendering. But we, we do know roughly what it would look like because there are pretty detailed instructions given uh, for how the Ark was to be constructed. And let me read to you from the book of Exodus. Moses was told, you shall make a mercy seat or uh, a, a place of propitiation, okay, the lid. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them ham of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. So the mercy seat is the place of propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy God's wrath. The image was this. Uh, inside the, the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself was a, a, an earthly uh, illustration or representation of God's home. God's home is a throne room because God is a king. So Moses was brought up on the mountain, and he said, I want you to make something on earth that looks like this. And in the very center of it will be God's throne. This is, this is an image of God's throne. The mercy seat or the lid, the covering, is the place of propitiation. God sits and he relates to and interacts with his people from this place. Cherubim are there because in the throne room of God, he's surrounded by cherubim who are guarding his holiness. They're, they're guarding the holiness of God, and he's interacting with his people from the, th the throne room, and he's judging his people. So the place of propitiation is the place at which his wrath must be satisfied. Paul is saying, in a sense, Jesus is the place of propitiation. Jesus is the place where God's wrath is satisfied. And what he's drawing on here is he's drawing on this imagery from uh, Jewish worship, and specifically the Day of Atonement. So, as, Paul, as John will say in 1 John chapter 2, he himself, that is Jesus, is the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That is, the sins of the entire world were poured out onto Jesus. Because God has to hate sin because God is perfectly holy. So he's poured out his wrath into Jesus. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. 
in verse 1, because I want to unpack this imagery a, a little, in a little more detail. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. So hold your place there in Romans 3, because we're going to be back there in just a second. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, that showed Israelites how to worship, and when they sinned, how to get back into fellowship with God. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, which was a model of the heavenly sanctuary or God's home. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, right? So what he's saying is there's an outer room. That's the holy place. Inside of that, there's an inner room. It's called the Holy of Holies. Behind the second veil, verse 3, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, or the place of propitiation. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, into the inner space, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for sin, the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So once a year, the high priest gets to go into the inner sanctum, into the Holy of Holies. That's on the Day of Atonement. You know what today is in the Jewish calendar? Interestingly, today is the Day of Atonement. So Jews around the world today are celebrating the Day of Atonement. To atone is the word kafar in Hebrew. It means to cover. So the lid is called also the covering. So what happens on the Day of Atonement is the high priest goes in alone with the blood of a bull. And what he does is he sprinkles that blood, spreads it over the place of propitiation, the place at which God's wrath is satisfied. So imagine, he enters into this place. It's an image of the throne room of God. The cherubim are there guarding the holiness of God. God is seated on his throne, and as he looks down in, he sees uh, three items inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 4, there's uh, a golden altar altar of incense, excuse me, um, in which is a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, right? So there are three items, and each of these three items remind God of Israel's sin. The manna reminds God that Israel complained and didn't trust that he would feed them. Then there's Aaron's rod, which budded. Remember, why did Aaron's rod bud and the others didn't bud? Because they were rebelling against Aaron's authority delegated from God. They were actually rebelling against God's authority. Aaron's rod reminds, them, reminds God of the people's rebellion against him. And then finally, the table of the covenants. Remember the first time Moses went up and he got the tablets? While he's getting the tablets the first time, what are, what's his people doing? They're down making a golden calf. Moses comes down and he shatters the tablets. And he has to go back up and get a second set. So these tablets remind God constantly of Israel's sin. The, the rod reminds God of Israel's rebellion. The manna reminds God of Israel's lack of gratitude and trust in him. So God's seated on his throne. He's looking down into the ark. And what does he see? He sees his people's sin. 
So once a year, the priest comes, comes in and he takes the blood and he covers over, that is, he atones for their sin. So now God looks down and instead of seeing his people's sin, he sees what? Blood. He sees blood. His wrath has been satisfied, but just for a year. Because the blood will dry and it'll flake, it'll be gone. In a year, God will look down and he will be reminded again of the people's sin. Chapter 10, verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why can the blood of bulls and goats not take away our sins? Because we are not bulls or goats. We're people. We need a sacrifice that's appropriate to, to who we are. So instead, these sacrifices just remind God that he has set aside the punishment of sin for a year, but that sin must ultimately be punished or paid for. Go back to chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. That is, when Jesus came in, he didn't go through the earthly tabernacle. He went into the throne room of God itself. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained the eternal redemption. Verse 24, chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands that is a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See that? What he's saying is Jesus only had to come and make one sacrifice for all sins for all times because his sacrifice was perfect. His blood is perfect. It doesn't dry up and flake away. It doesn't have to be reapplied time after time after time. He has made a full sacrifice for everyone's sin for all times. Paid in full. It is finished in the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, turn back to Romans chapter 3. Verse 25. We're justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction of his wrath through his, through, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what are the sins previously committed? The sins that were committed before Christ. And Paul says God was passing over those sins. How could God be just if he passed over those sins? He'd be just passing over those sins because he knew that ultimately a sacrifice would be made that would pay for those sins. He wasn't pretending there was no debt. He was postponing the payment of the debt until his son came. Let me illustrate. Does anybody know what that number is? Anybody? Business majors, economics majors. It's a really big number. 
There we go. It's the national debt. Exactly. It's the national debt. That's the national debt actually as of yesterday at 3 o'clock. It's bigger today. And I couldn't figure out how to put a hyperlink on, but then otherwise, I mean, it'd just be churning, right? It'd just be churning. Why? Because we're spending more than we're bringing in in taxes. Also, all that money we have to borrow and we have to pay interest on it. And we're pretending that somehow it doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, and it wouldn't bother me actually if I knew that somewhere out there, there's this super rich family and they're just going to, in like two years, they're going to drop $50 trillion on the U.S. and just take away the debt. Maybe just add an extra $50 trillion so we can keep spending and we'll just pretend that it doesn't really matter. That's how we live our lives. Well, that's not how God lives. There was a debt that was accumulating and God could pass over it for a time knowing that it ultimately would be paid. In Jesus Christ. And so it says he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can be just knowing that he will pay the debt to himself through Jesus. And consequently, he can declare us righteous because our debt has been paid by another. But we have to say yes to the payment of another, or we have to pay it ourselves. Propitiation means that God hates sin and his debt has to be paid. Propitiation means that Jesus Christ steps in front of us and he bears the weight of God's hatred and anger against our sin in himself so that we don't have to pay it ourselves. So, God's gift of righteousness costs us nothing. It restores our standing, that is, we are justified. It rescues us from slavery, we have been redeemed. And it frees us from punishment The satisfaction of God's wrath has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And then fifth, it destroys every boast. Verse 27, where then is the boasting? It is excluded, Paul says. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Where then is the boasting? Nobody gets to boast. Nobody gets to say, God owes me something. Nobody gets to say, well, I'm a little bit better than somebody else. I've I've earned it a little bit more. Nobody gets to brag. Nobody gets to boast. We're all leveled by the cross. That's the message of the cross. It's deeply, deeply humbling. Now, illustration for you this, real quickly. I like uh, humble brags. I I just enjoy those because what I enjoy most is when people do a humble brag and think that nobody notices, right? (laughs) So I found one this week uh, on Twitter, excuse me, X, and... um, It goes like this, I just did something very selfless, but more importantly, it was genuine, and I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Hashtag, so worth it. I was like, you know, that's really funny. What makes me laugh at that is is actually we all think things like that, but we're usually socially skilled enough not to put it in a post, but we do think these things, and we really kind of would like for people to, to see it and know it and kind of give us a little leg up, a little bit of credit. And we'd like to come to God and say, well, there's, there's at least a little something in me that makes me worthy of the sacrifice. And Paul says, nope. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. There's not even one. There's none actually who seeks after God. God seeks after us and he draws us to himself. So all of the credit goes to God. This summer, I, I flew to Washington, D.C. To, uh, to see my son. Actually, you know what? I didn't. I didn't fly because I can't fly. And you can't fly. No one can fly. Right? I, I got on a plane, and the plane carried me. 
And if credit should go anywhere, it goes to the engineers and it goes to the mechanics and it goes to the pilot because I fell asleep and I was carried to my destination. The same is true of our salvation. We have nothing to brag about, nothing to boast about before God. Salvation is God carrying us to himself as a gift through faith. Now, this is beautifully expressed in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just believe. So here's your application for this morning. Uh, two applications I'm going to give you. The first is stop boasting, just believe. So if you've heard the gospel before, but it's never really clicked, uh, ask, ask the Lord right now to, to make it just make sense to you. Maybe you've been uh, really struggling for a long time to, to earn God's favor, to be good enough, to clean up your act, to remove your own debt of sin. You can't. You just can't do it. But there's incredible freedom in just humbling yourself before the Lord and saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for shedding your blood for me. I accept. Humbling, yes. There's no boasting from you. But freeing, you can stop striving. And I would encourage you, if you've never made that decision, where you personally for yourself say, thank you, Jesus, that you do that this morning. That's what it means to believe. You receive a free gift and you stop trying to earn it. Uh, Second, real simple application, I would encourage you to memorize Romans 3, 23 through 24. So a lot of you probably memorize Romans 3, 23. Add on verse 24. So it reads like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I would encourage you as your application to, uh, to write that on a three-by-five card, stick it in your, your pocket or in your wallet or in your purse, tape it onto the dashboard of your car or onto your ruckus, right? So you can just read it as you're riding. It's real safe. Uh, and just let that just spin in your mind, spin in your heart all week long. Let, let your heart just meditate upon the, the, the free gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and let that drive you to worship. Right, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should never move far from the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That should motivate and animate all that we do in our lives. And so I want to encourage you just to go back to the gospel, memorize Romans 3, 23 and 24, meditate upon it over and over and over again this week, and just give God thanks for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can stop striving and struggling. I thank you that we can rest in the faithfulness of Jesus, that his work is, is full and final and complete. I thank you that He doesn't have to make sacrifice after sacrifice. Instead, uh, his one perfect sacrifice for all sins for all time has set us free from sin and death, has put us back in right relationship with you. And I pray that this week we would have a deeper appreciation of that and celebrate that. Father, I thank you for the freedom and the, the relief that it is that we can stop striving and how transformative it is to know that we're genuinely loved, just as we are on our good days and our bad days, when we succeed and when we fail, your love never fails. So we thank you this morning for that, and I pray that it would would just animate our lives throughout this week. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.